The year is 2003, and you just got faced. Welcome to the Pod People, the show where we have pod fever. I'm Matisse Van Rossum, and I'm covered in fox piss. And all the foxes from the community are coming down presently. To get you. Well, I'm Ben, and I absolutely love pancakes. Hi, I'm Cleveland Mosier, and I was floating near the tropic moon and dreaming of a blue lagoon, and now I'm crazy as a loon. All right, well, <laughs> we can tell who the cabin fever is getting to the most. Yeah, I'm really disappointed that no one went with, I'm a PhD of being a dog. <laughs> Yeah, well, well only Piglet is a professor of being a dog, so I didn't want to uh, steal her, <laughs> steal, steal her thunder. That is but... true. Good old classic Piglet. Uh, do y'all know what song I was sampling there? <laughs> no. no. You didn't recognize the that, that one-off uh, bit from uh, the, the legendary hit Cabin Fever from Muppet Treasure Island? Nope. Nope. Oh, well, that's what it was from. There you go. Uh, the A score written by... Hans Zimmer, as a matter of fact. Well, we learn many things every day, and what we have learned this week is that cabin fever is real. How many days has it been since we've been quarantined at this here lighthouse? <laughs> ben, this week was your pick. And yes. You picked something relevant, topical. Yes, very topical. Thematic, even. I, I picked. Maybe my favorite pandemic movie, pandemic horror movie, especially uh, Cabin Fever. It's a little movie by Eli Roth, who, of course, went on to direct things like Hostel. Um, but this is my favorite movie by him. You Mine, know, too. Um, it starts almost generic. Bunch of college kids go to a cabin in the woods. Who knows what crazy things are going to happen? And, and then horror adjacent it, things. It escalates uh, to batshit crazy. That's right. And yes. I think anything else <laughs> is uh, hard to say without uh, hard to say without spoiling. Well, uh, sure. as you said, this is uh, Eli Roth's uh, directorial debut from 2003. Oh, I forgot to mention. He also wrote produced and uh, was a co-star in this movie. Yes. Two roles in this movie, actually. All of those things. Uh, I forgot to mention who else the movie stars. Uh, forgot to do my job. It does have uh, Ryder Strong. Of Boy Meets World. Yep. Uh, <laughs> uh, Jordan Ladd, James DeBello, Serena Vincent, and Joey Kern, and a whole other cast of kooky characters. Yes. Um, this is also definitely my favorite Eli Roth film. I love. Might I be mine. Too. I like Hostel a lot as well, but I think he really uh, peaked with his first film. As I mentioned briefly on the podcast last week, this is one of my favorite uh, modern horror satire films because I think it's a really, really strong example of like how to satirize a genre without like being too on the nose. It's not terribly tongue-in-cheek, which I really appreciate. You know, like it gets absurdist and silly. But it's never pointing to itself and like being exactly. like, oh, oh, see, we know what we're it's, joking about. It's absolutely a hyperbole of the genre without ever being like nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Aren't we so clever? Yeah, there's never any like breaking of the fourth wall no. or anything of that sort. It's, it's just good gags. 
Yeah, um, extremely good gags. This is a very funny movie. Uh, one of the funniest horror movies ever, I think. I've seen this movie a bunch of times, and I always laugh at the same gags every time. Yeah. Yeah, so, there's some great ones. Just to give a sense of how little I knew about this film going into it, I thought this film was from the 70s. <laughs> what? <laughs> Interesting. I knew literally nothing, and when you hear a title like Cabin Fever, associated with like uh, someone I would have thought would have been a young director at the time, I did. I, I don't even know who Eli Roth was in this film. I don't know how old Eli Roth is. He was. Uh, he was grim. He, he was, was grim. Uh, the stoner guy. Oh wow! Stoner yeah. Guy. Well, yeah. definitely wasn't uh, of age to be directing films in the seventies. No, for no. sure. I don't even think he was alive in the seventies. He wouldn't have been. No. Uh, excellent. Um, but. No, you hear you were, you hear a title like Cabin Fever. Y'all were using the words pandemic and craziness and stuff, and it was just evoking imagery of um, like reefer madness and stuff in my head because that, that's how little I knew about this film. I didn't know when it came out. I didn't know anything about it. So it was a real delight finding out that no, it, it was shot in like 2002. And uh, yeah, what, what I'm fun. so fascinated to pick your brain about this movie, Cleveland, because you knew nothing going in, zero, and. This movie is full of just wild left turns. Stuff that you would never, ever see coming. <laughs> I Honestly, I'm jealous that I didn't get to watch this movie for the first time again tonight. Well, I think we should just go ahead and just say spoilers from here on out. I mean, it's yeah. impossible to yeah. talk the about it. The movie's almost I, I can't even talk old, like, adjacently about it without spoiling anything. Yeah. And I think it shouldn't be spoiled. Like, if you're still not familiar with anything about this film, then go check it out. Like, it's delightful. I had a yes. great time with it, not knowing anything There's, going in. Never been a better time and to you, watch it than now. And if you know the premise, I think it would still be very funny. Like, I don't think that affects it necessarily, but it definitely adds a little extra fun, zhuzh, little little spice. Well, what I what I love about the title of this movie, Cabin Fever, is that it's pretty much nothing more than a pun because it doesn't actually relate to the actual concept of cabin fever of being locked up in a place so long you go crazy it's just a virus movie that takes place in a cabin yeah like yeah. the first thing i have to bring up is uh how much of a debt the film tucker and dale versus evil owes this movie yeah um i need to go back and watch that one again i personally i love that film yeah um, i love that movie i, too. I, I love that great. film to bits see uh, that's I've never been that big on Tucker and Dale versus Evil because f pretty much for the exact reason that you just said. Yeah, that, as you like, saw us Cabin Fever I first. I saw Cabin Fever first, but that's interesting. Like, Ben, you love both. Yeah, I love both. I think they do different things. I think Tucker and Dale is much more directly tongue-in-cheek. Yes. yes. And, uh, you know, I think the differentiator is really the outbreak itself in Cabin Fever. Uh, what I like about both of them that can nicely be said with a little bow is that the villain or the monster of both those films is idiocy. Yes. Yes. Like, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I love that. <laughs> I love that too. Yeah. Bits. And I, I would argue that both movies owe a bit of a debt to like deliverance, for example, deliverance, sure. uh, evil dead, um, fucking, uh, any Friday, cabin related horror film, Friday the you know. 13th. I mean, that, that is what cabin fever is satirizing is <laughs> like those kinds of films. And I think that, 
another film that is a sort of um, direct result of Cabin Fever is Cabin in the Woods. Yes. Uh, which we haven't talked about yet, but will at some point. But like similarly to Dark City, you can see the things that influence this film and also see the films that it has influenced. And also similarly to Dark City, I feel like Cabin Fever is kind of underappreciated in the canon. I would totally agree. Like, it has a bit of a cult status, but like... Not enough that it deserves, you know? Like, I think it got middling reviews when it was released. It gets middling reviews sometimes now. Yeah. And it's one of those movies where I think deserves way more than it gets credit for. Absolutely, um, yeah. I think even when you hear, like, horror fans talk about Cabin Fever a lot of the times, it's like, yeah, it's pretty funny. It's good. It's like, I feel like it, that's such an understatement. Like, I, I truly feel like... Cabin Fever is high art in its own weird way. And I think it it does a lot of smart things, too. Like, the way it handles misdirection is great. One great example of that is, like, the first night... Obviously, you know, you see some of the infection early on, but when they're sitting around the bonfire and he's telling the story about the, the bowling alley guy... The bowling alley and, massacre, yeah. Yeah, and you get some fun sequences with that, with, like, bowling limbs and stuff. But it, it almost serves as a bit of a red herring of, you know, this guy went crazy, so you, you don't expect the disease quite as much. Well, yeah, it's like in stuff like Friday the 13th, where, like, the dumb teenagers are sitting around the campfire telling a story about, like, a, cri- uh, like a killer who went crazy, and then the killer shows up and kills them. It's like... They're setting that up in the same kind of way, and then somebody does show up, but it's just Eli Roth as, like, a, uh, like, stoner skater dude with a little soul patch. Uh, Grim. Grim, yes, with his dog, Dr. Mambo. Uh, Which, one of the, my favorite jokes in the movie. Yeah, he's a it's professor. It's one of the best, easily, for sure. Of being a dog. Face. Face. He does this thing where he pulls his hand in front of his face it's, and just says face. It's one of those so unironically, and I love it. So early aughts, it's it's amazing. Like like he's got the soul patch and he's got like the the surfer bruh accent. Absolutely incredible. Which uh, I did want to key into real quick. Uh, much like Dark City, for very different reasons, I see this film, or at least I I perceive this film as a a lovely time capsule. Yes, like it is. Like they're constantly like saying that things are gay and making all sorts of like very not like the face thing well, it was, like all those like nine very very like early 2000s it's like the like kind 90s. of it's like the kind of jokes that fred durst tried to write into the fanatic this but, year <laughs> but like yeah last year yeah. It's, it's the kind In of 2019 it has almost a mad tv sensibility you could say yes. yeah absolutely Quite. well like on on the subject of this film being sort of underappreciated this film is basically like the sole reason that i will do defend Eli Roth to the death anytime anybody tries to say that he's a bad filmmaker. Like, he's made some fucking duds, no doubt about it. Like, Green Inferno was not great. His Death Wish was kind of... I never saw that. Um, Um, But, like, this, and I would argue the Hostel hostel, movies, you know? But, like, I can Um, even understand people not liking Hostel, like, if you're not into torture porn or that kind of stuff, or that level of gratuity. I, I can at least sort of tolerate criticisms of that, but, like, if you try to say fucking Eli Roth is a bad director, 
director. Like, th- this movie is fucking it's amazing. It's great, yeah. Yeah, like, there are a number of elements about, like, the, the editing and the, the framing of it that did feel very um, artificial, but I think that in such a kooky film, it fits great. Like, it fits like a glove, even. Like, it's that wacky sort of uh, sensibility and the very, like, cleanly framed elements. Like, this this movie is not naturalistic in any way. No, no, And no. Uh, I, uh, I think in this case, like, it, it made the, the jokes land a little bit better and the gore and the violence and stuff be a little bit easier to approach comedically. You you bring up the film being sort of like a time capsule for, you know, the era in which it was made, and I agree. I think something fun to note is that this movie came out the same year as The Descent, and we watched that a couple of weeks ago and talked about, like, how The Descent has aged, and I think that that's an interesting topic to bring up in this case, too. Because well, there's I think a very, it's a very weird different thing films. to say, but I, I actually think this movie has aged. I might, ha- I might prefer how this movie has aged to The Descent, and I love both. I love The Descent, and I think visually it is it's extraordinary. Listen to the episode about it. Like I, I, I gush about it as well. But I really liked the color correction in this film. Those elements of it, like, felt less dated to me. And there, there are several shots that are just gorgeous, too, in, in this movie. Um, and The Descent as well. But, like, so much of The Descent is, like, so color graded for, like, the early 2000s. And, like, just really, like, the visually, like, feels like the, the early 2000s See, to me. That's, that th- this film didn't And I think take on top road. of that, this movie kind of plays off of tropes of early 2000s horror. Totally. You know, late 90s, early 2000s horrors. So I feel like the artificiality and kind of the datedness feels like it has intention to it almost. There's so I, there, I yeah. give it more of a pass than I would if it was just like a straight-faced, you know, absolutely more well, with these elements. I think that I'm actually in kind of the opposite camp to you, Cleve. I think that this movie is far more dated than The Descent, but in this case, I don't think dated is a bad thing. Uh, I think for the exact reason you said, Ben, it's like it has a degree of campiness and as a satire already it kind of like distills those tropes of late 90s early 2000s horror in such a way that it is like a a perfect time capsule to use that term again of that era whereas the descent is like there's certain things about that are dated but ultimately i think it's aged very well in the sense that like it's horror and it's storytelling is pretty timeless it doesn't feel like oh it's so 2000s but like this movie is like oh it's so 2000s yeah and it, it plays off of archetypes of you know the cabin in the woods type of movie in yeah. the same way that the actual movie cabin in the woods does you know you have your archetypal frat bro mm-hmm. and pretentious you know kind of douchebag character I think where this film really differs from Cabin in the Woods is where Cabin in the Woods takes the tropes and makes them so over-exaggerated that they're caricatures. I think this movie takes the tropes and starts to lure you into sort of a false sense of security and then turns the tropes on their head. There's a lot of subversion in this movie. Even it, like, not necessarily narrative subversion, but just, like, it's hard to anticipate what is coming. It's very unpredictable yes. in so many ways. Yes. 
And I think uh, the the false sense of security is a great thing to point out because, like, even with the casting of, like, Ryder Strong as the main character, mm-hmm. it, you know, his big break was Boy Meets World. He's a very, you know, child star actor. You know, usually those kind of actors do kind of generic core in their pivot. Yeah. So it does bring a false sense of security with that, too, even with the casting. Um, well, he's even he's even established as like kind of a quiet, sensitive boy type. They, virginal, like, almost. Yeah, virginal. Uh, his his other two male friends call him a pussy. Like they set him up to be kind of like the hero, but rather he definitely does not stay a pussy for the entire movie but it kind of goes in the other direction where rather than like becoming heroic and saving the day he just becomes sort of like outwardly violent and just like his incompetence just sort of skyrockets his ability to handle every situation is just kind of shut down completely. Well, it's a whole play of, like, to- toxic masculinity. Like, the other two guys are, like, just generally, like, like toxic shit- shitheads to begin bros. with. Yeah, yeah, bros. Hence them calling him a pussy and stuff just for, like, being, like, a, a, a reasonable person, you know? And, like, the other two guys have, like, either brought their girlfriend, like, the other guy, like, brought his girlfriend, you know, and whatnot, and, like, Jeff the other guy just came along. And, and Bert is just there, there drinking and getting high. He's, like, a, a he's the, the typical stoner archetype. Mm-hmm. And even and, even he kind of of like subverts that archetype as well as being like one of the only ones who tries to sort of take agency in the movie even though he's a total asshole about it right he's not mm-hmm. well like he's worse than worthless he takes a lot of action he just takes horrible action all yeah. the time um and yeah so this subversion is that's kind of active. thematic yeah. in this film though is like everything does that ev- yeah. like it all the characters are marked by their complete incompetence yeah and narcissism too you know <laughs> they they just evolve immediately into only caring about their own survival right um um, in a similar way to Tucker ver- and Dale versus Evil, in that like in this immediate moment of crisis, they all just evolve into being total awful people. Yes. Rather than in horror films, where usually you expect them to band together to try to fight the outside force, but in this case, it's like nope, they totally completely turn on uh, on self interest. Mm-hmm. And to bring that back around to our our focal character. Um, um, you know, he's he's come up to the cabin with his childhood friend, you know, who, of course, he's had a crush on. It's the girl next door you yeah. know, situation. Um, and so, like, there we see them sort of, like, flirting with each other, you know, on and off. It's, you know, your your usual fare. But he's too point. cowardly to, yeah. like, really make a move. Yeah, he's a nice guy, kind of. Th- it's, a, he's a, it's a nice guy situation, really, is what it comes down to. Very, except very when, early 2000s. Except when it's not. Yes. <laughs> except for when it is not. But it, it's, it's really framed that way to begin yeah. with, for its favor like it's definitely a point of commentary on nice guys i think yeah. which is very productive like it's, it's good it's a good thing to talk Pro- about especially in progressive for that for the time i think yeah, yeah like this film is holding a spotlight on like the the era it's born out of it it, it embraces that early aughts vibe hard and I, I i love that about it like it's it because it's self-aware it gets away with it another interesting point about his sort of relationship with uh karen the the girl next door type is in this kind of movie you would expect that, like, throughout the film, they're the two who, who survive, like, they band together, 
they have the closest bond and like through the 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 crisis you know he gains her love by the end of it and you know they they are brought together through their shared trauma but nope no. she's the first one out of all of them who gets the virus and like what do they do they all imme- they take her and lock her out in the shed because they don't want to be near her and basically just leave her out there to die i love the subversion of their they're actually being like a good number of people nearby. Yeah, like, they're not out in the middle of nowhere. Every time they go to someone nearby, it goes drastically wrong. Though always, literally like, the worst. Yeah, because of because of their own incompetence. Yes, and absolutely. Yeah. They go to this like farmer, I guess, and she's yeah, like, she's a, pig, she's a pig farmer. Yeah, she's a uh, she's cutting open this pig when we first see her. And she's just screaming at it. You think I'm gonna eat this sick pig? Yeah, kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> or the moment where they go to the house next door, and uh, Ryder Strong is like looking through the window at like a sexy lady. He starts like peeping on the, a woman undressing, and then her husband comes outside with the shotgun, as and, he should. And then when he tries to say like, "Hey, my friend is sick. We need help," all he he just looks like a, a peeping Tom. Because mm-hmm. well, you know he says, he says, "Hey, my friends are sick." And he's like, "You're sick, bud. Right. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here." Well, the, which the, is also a fun play on toxic masculinity. Yes. In the same uh, way. Well, yeah, and and yeah. also like that horrible trope of like peeping in movies and it being all right. It's like, like yeah, if, like, if you were really cons- if you were really concerned about the the situation like you run straight up to the door and knock on the door and ask for help but like no instead you you take a second to stop and like watch a woman undress and like to go back to the the pig farmer the reason they fuck that up is because after they sort of like win her favor she takes them in the house and they start trying to tell her what happened and they see a picture of the homeless guy who first brought the disease to the cabin that they set on fire (laughs) because they wouldn't help him selfishly i I love the scene where they uh, set him on fire as well um just to mention like that came out of incompetence as well like one of them is like shooting bug spray at him while Ryder strong (laughs) has a, 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 a torch from the fire but yeah they find out that the hobo that they've set on fire is the pig farmer's cousin so they leave rather than tell her that they accidentally set her cousin on fire so that's one person who they could have gotten help from nothing the other one like you said the guy they're pe- or the the guy whose wife Ryder strong peeps on and then when like they finally do find somebody who's actually willing to help them it's deputy winston one of my favorite characters but also wildly incompetent yes uh <laughs> what makes him so great <laughs> deputy winston is definitely one of my favorite characters he's played by giuseppe andrews who uh was the uh, lead subject of one of my favorite documentaries on filmmaking, actually, um, called Giuseppe Makes a Movie. Um, After this movie, like a decade after, he was uh, living in trailer parks, uh, getting all his neighbors to star in his $300 budget movies. He made like 20 movies a year. Really bizarre guy. Sort of a Mark Burchard type. Yes, yes, very much so. Um, but he kills it in this movie. He's, uh, his performance is so strange and funny. Um, I love how when uh, Deputy Winston is first introduced, he comes up to the cabin 
and he sees the truck just destroyed and covered with blood, and he's completely unfazed. He's more interested in the parties nearby. Yeah, like, at first, he just straight up doesn't even notice the truck covered in blood. He's, like, so, like, excited. He's like, oh my god, new people, like, my age to hang out with in this small, shitty town. His whole bit about, like, how uh, the people up in, like, some, like, northwestern town or the whatever. Na- the neighboring town. Yeah, like, yeah. like, up in the neighboring town, like, how they really love to party, you know, and you can tell it's a population of, like, 200. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, it's He's amazing. like, oh, yeah, my cousin goes up there, and I go up there and party with him because i know i'm gonna get pussy every time (laughs) like he's that's the best thing about deputy winston is that like he's a cop who has absolutely no business being a cop and does not present himself as a cop no because like he's he's still like a college kid and just like looking to go out and have a good time in a small town got a wispy little mustache Mm -hmm. and he keeps calling Ryder strong the party man (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and when uh when Karen comes out of the house to like see what's going on, he's like he's like, "Oh, don't you worry, ma'am. Everything's under control. You just go back inside and just drink a nice big 40. Just keep on partying." <laughs> <laughs> Later on, when we see him like partying with with a bunch of teens. with a bunch of underage, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like like he even like he puts in a call and, and they 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 call back saying like, yeah, Deputy Winston, you uh you you know anything about that APB we put out about that underage drinking party? <laughs> like, <laughs> he's like, oh yeah, I still haven't found that underage drinking party. And they're like, well, don't worry about it. We got a more serious situation. <laughs> he's partying there with his police cruiser, like still in his uniform, just like getting these kids drunk. Because he's just so desperate for a party. (laughs) The characters in this movie, like all of the secondary characters. Yes, all of the all of the character actors, especially just kill it. Deputy Uh, Winston, uh, the the shopkeeper. Oh, my God. We we first like are introduced to the tone and the world of this movie. I would argue with what's the kid's name? Dennis. Dennis and the shopkeeper. Well, Dennis. Um, <laughs> Dennis, this uh, very deliverance kid. The deliverance just <laughs> on the porch of the general store, and one of the one of the main characters sits down next to him, and he just reaches over and grabs his hand and bites him. There's this, uh, a whole great gag when like Dennis's dad comes out. He's like, everybody knows not to sit next to Dennis. They're like, well, maybe you should put a sign up. <laughs> and then we come back to the general store later, and they have put up a sign that says, "Don't sit next to Dennis." <laughs> Dennis is great. The dad is great. The old shopkeeper is also one of my yeah, favorite the characters. Yeah, old man. Yeah, yeah. Like, what a what a uh, a wonderful like lens to put up to like folksy racism. I love the devil subversion there, where he comes across like this friendly, <laughs> kooky old salesman who you know just wants the best for these these young kids, and uh, and then and then they they ask him like, "Well, sir, what's that gun on the wall for?" And of course, he says it's for um, you know the, the. Well, they ask him what the fox piss is for first, and yeah, then that's like, for foxes. Yeah, <laughs> what's the rifle for? Yeah. It's for mm-hmm. uh, the, yeah, the, the word, and uh, so. Um, 
we we think that the the gag is just oh he's a friendly folksy old man oh wait no he's a racist and like that's that's as far as it goes until like the very end of the film <laughs> the, like, the last, last gag of the with movie this <laughs> incredible subversion where like uh we see a group of like black friends like show up at the uh the store and you see him going for the gun and you're thinking like oh god they're going back to this gag i, I uh, you know here it goes and then like he turns around and everyone is smiling and he just hands them the gun like got it nice and polished up for you and everything you know this is, this is the kooky old man and, what's up my yeah I mean, <laughs> Um, well, it's one of my favorite jokes in the movie, and I feel like it's one of those jokes that would never fly today. It's very blazing saddles. It, it's definitely like trepidatious, and yeah, like you, I wouldn't put it in a film. I mean, now, now, but, but like, like this is also we're also talking about the era of like the Chappelle Show, and yes. that gag is very Chappelle Show. Very. I think they even did a, an extremely similar gag on the Chappelle Show. At oh, one in the point. first episode, yeah, yeah. So absolutely. like, it's such a product of its time, but I, I still think it's so funny. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely not my place to to say beyond that yeah well that's the thing I, f- I feel like it wouldn't be able you wouldn't be able to do it today because no one has any sense of nuance i think part of the reason it's so funny is it shines a light on your preconceptions of like racist southerners and uh you, think, you know you just rednecks to- fully assume that the joke stops at the old the the old like uh country man is a racist right yeah. and that's why like, it's such and- a good that's why it's such a good bit because then it, it it sets it up at the very beginning and doesn't pay off until the last scene by the time all the rest of that just absolute madness that happens in this movie you come back to that and you've totally forgotten about it and then the payoff is just like god that's such a fucking good callback and i agree with you ben i think it's a a great way to like sort of be a double subversion and like shine the light on your own your own preconceptions (laughs) about like what the joke is going to be and that's why i think eli roth is a really clever writer and i don't think he gets enough credit for that i think there's even a lot of that shit in hostile too yeah especially with the guy on the train talking about like you know uh, eating your food and, and hostile. I that that is very reminiscent. That of course same my style. Horse. Of, of course my yeah, horse. That, yeah, the <laughs> weird kooky characters, that same style of dialogue, it definitely all fits. Hustle was director. only like two or three years after this movie, mm-hmm. I think. I think yeah. Hustle was Eli Roth's. This second came out movie. in O three. Mm-hmm. Saw came out in O four. The first Saw was O three. Oh O three so. as well. Um and then Hostel was just a couple of years after it. One of the things I really want to talk about with this movie is all of the great uh, practical effects. Um, They really don't skimp out on the blood. Uh, They really go excessive with it at times with people just spraying it out of their mouth. Like, uh, like exploitation kind of levels. Yeah, almost Evil Dead-esque. Evil Dead or, you know, the kind of stuff you would expect out of that era of, or just Quentin Tarantino in general, just like very over the top in the best way. Like there's no such thing as too much blood. You know how I knew the blood sprays were coming? Early on, there's a bit where uh, the F.U. hat guy. What's Bert. His name? Where Bert. There's, there's a uh, sequence early on where Bert is taking a piss out in the woods and it's clearly via one of those like those tubes that yeah. like spray the liquid everywhere. So I was like, oh yeah, we're going to get some blood sprays in this movie <laughs> after seeing that scene. Um, I, I love that. There's a little bit, I guess, in the opening sequence too with the the dead dog. 
Oh yeah, when when yeah. Henry the Hermit finds the the dead dog and gets some blood sprayed on his face, and that's mm-hmm. how he gets infected. Um, I mean, yeah, a little bit. I think that it's it's pretty restrained for a while, yes. and until it's not, until Henry starts spraying all over the inside of the car. <laughs> I love all like the viscera that like is on the car later on, like after in the aftermath. I mean, that's a funny thing about it too, is that they're all so concerned with like not catching the virus, but they're so bad at not touching stuff that is like covered in blood Welcome like to 2020 <laughs> right <laughs> here we are relevance only one character in this movie does social distancing properly and it's jeff yes and that is a gag in itself he goes out of his way to be super paranoid and not let anyone touch him or eat the same food out of dishes including his own girlfriend who yeah. he comes there for like a romantic week with <laughs> <laughs> he's great too because he's he sort of like fills the archetype of like the pretty boy jock but even so like he's the least heroic in the movie well, yeah, yeah. Y- you immediately set him up uh at the the general store talking about suing, suing the dude yeah. for dennis biting him and you're like okay so he's this kind of douchebag he's like the the self-assured asshole who's like gonna step in and like take command of the situation and like try to be all tough and then like once shit starts going down he's the opposite of that he becomes like super prissy like you said extremely paranoid walking around with a with a handkerchief over his mouth not wanting to be near anybody and then eventually he just grabs uh two six packs of beer and goes off into the woods yeah. and disappears for most one of my of the other movie. favorite parts of that too is early on they had set up that bit with uh him and bert betting each other who could go the longest without drinking anything other than beer and bert of course he accidentally drinks water and, and gets that sick. turns out to be his downfall um but jeff uh, the moment things go awry, he grabs the rest of the beer and runs off into the woods. <laughs> and I just love, I love, like, he's pretty much gone from the rest of the movie after that, but every now and then it'll just cut back to him in this, like, abandoned barn by the lake, just, like, drinking beer by himself. <laughs> Which also, like... Those are some of the best shots in the movie. Like that abandoned barn looks good. I mean, scenery-wise, this like, film is really nice. Yeah, when like, he emer- got a lot of really beautiful shots. When he emerges from the barn like a babe from the womb, like <laughs> like, and, and the camera beautifully pans to the side, and like the setting sun is catching the edge of the the abandoned barn, and like all the the ivy going up the side, like it's gorgeous it's a beautiful shot like they clearly like planned it out and like took a lot of extra time to get that framing perfect and like it it looks lovely it seems like they shot a lot of this movie during like golden hour Mm -hmm. like a lot of the outdoor stuff is like very very pretty and credit to the night sequences too they all look they all look great one thing that's that's worth bringing up like is like day day for night is is always rough um and i you can tell that i think they use like like spotlights like yeah, they did night and said so they did they did control no. night light and um you can you can usually like you can tell there are a few sequences where there's like smoke and people's like uh people's bodies are like uh casting shadows on the smoke around them and stuff but like generally it looks great regardless but the best thing about it is even though they still use spotlights at night they don't color correct hard blue like as a matter of fact they tended to go warmer there's a few sequences like starting up the car at night and other stuff where 
our protagonist is wandering around and like they there's actually a bit of like a, a a nice like warming tint of color correction too and it looks great it looks lovely yeah well one of the best parts of the night sequences especially the early one is uh because fire is so openly used in it it gives it that warmth that you would normally get of the oranges of the the flames and stuff yeah it's very it's very consistent color wise like like you said there's a lot of fire stuff and then like during the day it's all very golden and idyllic so it's tonally consistent between the day and the night um to circle around back to jeff real quick because what i love about how they resolve his character is that you think he might actually be the most competent one in the movie by social distancing Mm -hmm. And just going off on his own. Being a coward, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, but also being smart. Um, yeah, I don't know if, if it's cowardly. I mean, it's it's out of cowardly self-interest, but it's also the smartest thing I to mean, do. Well, to a degree. I mean, the, 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 the smartest thing to do is to to go out and find help from people in well, a competent, they certainly competent fashion. Tried. <laughs> um, uh, he tried. He tried one spot. Like, yeah. there's still other people, and, like, you just can just walk farther. Like, Well, they did go to the empty uh, the house as well. And steal their beef jerky. Yeah. <laughs> but I my, my point is that you think that he might be the only one who survived. Because at the end, after everybody else is dead, he goes back to the cabin stupidly and just, like, see what's going on. And there's this great scene where he's walking through the house and he sees all of the blood and all of the aftermath that he has not been around for. And he starts crying and you think it's because he's sad his friends are dead. Mm-hmm. But then he starts laughing and just screaming, I made it. I knew I'd fucking make it. Everyone's dead but me. I knew I'd make it. And he just walks out onto the porch and uh, in similar fashion to Night of the Living Dead, he just gets lit the fuck up by the cops that are outside (laughs) oh god i love that and like man even all the cops too at the end who think that they're like containing the situation are like being so blase about how they handle the blood and the bodies and like burning them just completely incompetent and like winston took uh writer strong's character and like threw his body in the creek like even though he had an infectious disease (laughs) and then we see the kids filling up their water tub from the creek to go make lemonade that then everybody at the end of the movie is drinking it's just like complete incompetence across the board nobody is in control of anything i will say like that if if there was one thing and it's a dumb thing it's a dumb nitpick but like like any small town would just drink well water no one's drinking from a creek i mean yeah nobody's drinking from the creek but no, no one's drinking from a creek like like few are that dumb and don't live long to tell if you're drinking from a creek hey, like but there's kids. dysentery in there all <laughs> dysentery kids would grab crick water this is lemonade. true and and if it was just that it would be fine but also the guy in the shop like recommends that they go down and get some water from the crick oh like, yeah, yeah when when dennis bites uh uh writer strong does his dad tells us like there's a stream out back where you can wash your hand it's like why don't you just go into the general store and wash your hands in the bathroom you know, <laughs> yeah, just, just, you know, but I mean, like you do. It's I, I, I think that that's thematically consistent. Like everybody in this movie is a fucking dunce. Oh, yeah. Like, everyone. It's just it is a pandemic movie, but it's like a pandemic 
before the pandemic. It's like yes. the story is only like patient zero and like the initial spread because uh, they set it up beautifully, you know, just having all of the people from the town coming in to to drink the lemonade as the credits roll. But I mean, also the the hobo's body ended up in the reservoir. So it's going to spread. Well, it's I a mean, very bleak ending, but clearly this is a prequel to Return of the Living Dead. No, it's a prequel to Cabin Fever 2. <laughs> it is, is directed there? by Ty West. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen Cabin Fever 2. There's a sequel. And a third one. There's a third one? Yeah. I didn't this know is, there was a third a one. Trilogy? Not by Eli Roth. No, Eli Roth only did Let's the first one. Let's make that one. clear. The second one was directed by Ty West. Did uh, he produce? Who, uh, or? has done some great movies. Ty uh, West has done some great movies. Um, but Ty West wanted to take his name off of Cabin Fever 2. Let's oh. just say. It's probably not good. I haven't seen it. Oh. but I've never seen Cabin Fever 2, but uh, Cabin Fever 3 came out in 2014. It's called Patient Zero, and it also stars Sean Astin. <laughs> Um, But what I what I do think is worth mentioning is uh, that they did a remake of the original in 2016. That is, I think I listed as one of my least favorite films of the decade uh, uh, a few months ago. It's so strange. I remember, Ben, I remember you and I watched it back in Milwaukee and it is absolutely awful, but it's Almost a shot-for-shot remake. Why? Get this, though. All of the comedy is removed. Yeah. It's a almost shot-for-shot remake done totally straight-faced, totally serious, no jokes. But but all all the terrible decisions they make, that would just make them frustrating. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But that's such a no brain. Yeah. That, oh, no. It's fucking terrible. Oh, yeah. yeah, I bet it is. Like, you can't you can't just, like, take a comedy film, remove the comedy, then expect it to work. Bad framing, like, just becomes shitty framing Like right. when you do that. Like, comedically bad and... Mm, and like we've ooh, been saying, so much rough. of what makes this movie good oh, is how representative of the early 2000s it is. And self-aware. How and self-aware and funny and, like commenting on those kinds of tropes and stuff and to take that and make the the events almost identical the shots almost identical but totally serious to try to like modernize it and make like a scary movie it's maybe one of the most misinformed uh horror film decisions in like the last 10 years yeah i cannot say enough bad things about the remake and honestly I think that considering the original Cabin Fever is kind of an underappreciated cult classic, I think, if anything, the 2016 remake probably hurt the opinion of the original. Because, yeah, not... imagine seeing that one first. Yeah, and like, would it. Would just it having you... all, like, the gags spoiled for you, like, without the humor. But no gags. Yeah. Like, just totally serious. Like, would it make you want to go back and see what the original was? No, it would ruin like? it. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Bad. Yeah. Bad. That's no good. You can't do that. Bad. 
don't 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 recontextualize <laughs> your film without uh, without doing like hard rewrites. Like you can't do that. It's like there's no doubt that like the other kind of like attempted film remakes and reboots, the 2009 Friday the 13th, and like or the, My Bloody Valentine, or My Bloody yeah. Valentine, or Nightmare on Elm Street. Like no doubt bad movies, but at least they tried something different and, from their source material. Right, and like, here's the thing. I could totally see a a remake of Cabin Fever that is not funny being good. I see that as something you could do. You would have to completely rewrite all of the decisions made by your protagonists. Um, I would like say... You'd, you'd have to, like, actually make them feel like they're well-written and, and, like, smart characters or... You know, otherwise it would just be obnoxious. I think they've already made that movie, and it's Fede Alvarez's Evil Dead remake. <laughs> yes, which we should talk about at some point. I think that is it's a pretty good, a remake. pretty good remake. It's not, uh, it's not amazing in my opinion, but it's pretty damn good. Um, you know, I think this movie fits like a perfect lane of like exploitation in the same respects as something like Piranha's remake. Does. fantastic you know? comparison um and eli roth even has a cameo in that movie but you know it's that embrace of camp yeah without being too winky nudgy about it you know you can go silly and absurd for sure but you don't have to just scream you don't at have the to audience, break the fourth you know? wall right uh we're in on this like the absurdity is the self-awareness and i think that sense of camp is really underappreciated uh you know you look at the average ratings for a movie like piranha 3d or this movie on you know imdb on letterboxd even critical reviews i think this movie's average on imdb is like 5.6 out yeah. of 10 which is yeah. like i think a lot of it has to do with the fact that i think it's really only now that it's tolerable to look back at that era, especially like for for me, if I if I'd watched this film about five or so years ago, it might have been too cringy for oh, me. I That's totally interesting. Disagree. Like, I totally disagree. I first watched this movie in high school on VHS uh and i loved it then well i mean that was like yeah. the early aughts like right like at that time or at least no. like no i'm no. not late. that old like, <laughs> we're looking at well, it's, it's like, like what, early 2010 yeah like 20 okay like 2010 like 2010 2011 yeah okay I, I think like around that that time i don't know like i just i think like 2015 or so like i just i don't know i, I look at that era and i just i get I, I just, I cringe up so hard because that's like, that's like middle school for me. I don't know. I just make, I, I just mean, like, yeah, I saw this movie for the first time when I was in middle school, but if anything, as I've gotten older, I've learned to appreciate it more because I've finally learned to understand like what's clever about it from like a filmmaking perspective. Well, absolutely from a filmmaking perspective, but from your average perspective, which is the, the majority of where these reviews well, are coming from. I'm just trying to put yeah, any yeah, amount of no, sense and to I, this. I think it's like, some... I, I love those, this. I think it's, like, where it's but... very. I would almost say it's meta modern in some ways, where you know you could take it at the face value, dumb entertainment. But if you have like a more serious reading of it in comparison to other movies of the genre of the time, uh, it becomes much more rich in a different way. I honestly, I think it's equally successful on both of those fronts, though. I think you—that's a good point to bring up. I agree. I think that as dumb fun, it's also extremely successful. Yeah. I think honestly, 
rather than it just now being far enough separated from it that it's funny, which I completely disagree with. I think it's just that the reason people don't hold this film in the same kind of regard that like we do is I think for a lot of people, stupid equals bad. Yeah, and yeah I, I, would, I, I would agree with that. And I think when they see dumb jokes like fucking uh, Dr. Mambo's professor of being a dog faced and like the absolutely bonkers slow-mo scene where Dennis does like karate kid shit across the parking lot. <laughs> Uh, screaming pancakes. Like, people see that, and they're like, that's dumb. That's like Ben Stiller-level stuff. Like, I was I was like, so caught off guard by it in all the right ways. It's like, like yeah, yeah, it's fucking it's fucking stupid. There's no doubt about it, but it's supposed to be stupid. Like, the, the stupidity is not a sign of it being bad. Like, that is, in and of itself, the intention. Yes. That the absurdity is the point. I think that just like a lot of people will just look at stuff at face value and say, this is dumb, therefore it must be bad. A lot of times, bad movies happen when people are trying to be smart a lot of, ta- a lot yes. of the time. Yeah. Like, how many fucking bad movies have we watched that are, like, <laughs> that are like so fucking oh, so full bad. of themselves, mm-hmm. you know? Like, think they're so intelligent and so cerebral. Like, There's something to be said about embracing stupidity sometimes and not trying to be too smart, you know? You can still play with genre, you Absolutely. can do stuff like that. You can play into tropes. But you don't have to have deep philosophical themes underlying everything. I think I, even like with smart films, like sometimes the best way to approach it is is less intellectually. Um, absolutely. Well, like and and more like face value. A, good, a reasonable example being The Lighthouse, which has a lot of levity in it and we like goofy, almost comedic moments. You know, but for for every one of those, there's a there's some sort of like allegorical concept. And I think part of the reason this movie works were something like. I don't know, like Club Dread, for example, doesn't work is Eli Roth has such an understanding of horror movies and horror genres and exploitation movies that he can play off those tropes much better than, you know, something that's going comedy first. Yeah. You know, you know, I think that provides an entry to an interesting tangent that I, I We'll try to not take too far off, but just like looking at Eli Roth and his career and who he is as a filmmaker, I think in many ways, Eli Roth has spent his career trying to be like the Quentin Tarantino of horror, sort of like the the like film fanatic who educated himself by like watching movies rather than getting a formal education, who is interested in playing with form and with genre and doing it in very over the top ways. I mean, we even see his relationship to Quentin Tarantino, like he's in Inglorious Bastards, like they're friends, you mm-hmm. know. So it, I, I think. In many ways, 
Eli Roth is sort of like trying to achieve that level of of skill, but for horror, I think that he is overall much less successful than Tarantino. But you look at stuff like this and like Hostel, and I think that the comparisons to like Tarantino's early work, like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown and stuff, there's definitely parallels. Well, and there. I think I think where Eli Roth comes short in all of the later movies is not his misunderstanding of genre. Like, I think the best parts of those other movies, like Green Inferno or Death Wish, is his understanding of those genres very well. Yeah. It's that he's not a great script writer. <laughs> you know, he's not the... I don't even I don't even know if I agree with that, because, like, I think Cabin Fever and Hostel have pretty tight scripts. I think what it is with Eli Roth is I think that similarly to Fred Durst, we talked about, or I mentioned the fanatic earlier is I just don't think that Eli Roth has adapted to the changing times particularly well. I think in many ways, his re- more recent film output has been trying to do the same kind of stuff that he did early in his career. And that shit just doesn't fly the same way anymore. It doesn't work. Like if you want to continue to maintain a sense of quality, you have to make sure that you are changing with the times. Yeah, yeah. you have to. And, yeah, you have to adapt. You have to grow, and, and I don't and not, and not stagnate. And like I don't Fred think Durst. he. Per- I don't think he particularly. Yeah, well, <laughs> I would say I think uh, I think uh, even at his worst, Eli Roth is a better filmmaker than Fred Durst. But <laughs> <laughs> well, and this movie is such lightning. not the highest compliment. This movie but it's is something. such lightning in the bottle, yeah. where like. It's the perfect marriage of like a certain time period and a tone of comedy where it feels almost effortless in its comedy, whereas like later stuff with the comedy, he tries to take the same themes and tone of something like Cabin Fever, and it just doesn't translate nowadays. Yeah. You know, it translates in Hostile somewhat because, you know, it is very close in time period. Yeah. But the further you get out from that, the less that effortlessness stays. Absolutely. And I mean, I I think that in a lot of ways, creating essentially a perfect film on your first try is a curse. Where do you go from there? How do you grow from that? I think that it happens. Last year. I mean, so many yeah, examples of like it happening. Ari Aster and Robert Eggers and Jennifer Jordan Kent Peele too, and Jordan Peele. But I mean, also all of those were only their second films. Well, and Eli Roth had made, I think, two really good films. <laughs> so it's like, how do you? Oh, it's, I see where you're going. Yeah, now. Okay, that's the yeah. funniest mm. part because he followed this up with Hostel, right. which Beyond Us uh, is widely considered his best. You know, yeah. Hostel and Hostel Two are like his calling cards in a lot of ways. But I think you make a really interesting point about these directors catching lightning in a bottle the first and maybe second time and trying to recreate that every time afterwards. Yeah, it's just it just depends on like how like if they're trying to do the same thing over and over again, I don't think it works. I think if you get they, diminishing returns. If they mm. continue to try new things and take risks, and that's why I have more a little bit more faith in directors like Jordan Peele and Robert Eggers and Ari Aster, because I feel like all of their second films 
were an evolution from what they were doing the first time. It didn't feel like the same thing again. As long as they continue to like to go in that direction, like if you you can start by setting the bar high as long as you either stay on that level or go up. Like you just have set yourself a very or very high bar. Or you just go in a radically different direction. Like look yeah. at uh David Robert Mitchell who did it follows and oh, then yeah. follows it up with Under under the the Silver Lake, which is radically different, but uh, I I like when directors go outside of their you know wheelhouse a little bit. Totally, don't get shoehorned. Mm-hmm. Or if you or if you do, make sure you continue to do it damn well. Yes, because like I think there are some directors who have been making variations on the same movie their entire career, but continue to pull it off just about every time. Yes. Tarantino is a very good example <laughs> yes. of that, I think. Aside from his mid-2000s slump, I think he's been doing a great job of making basically the same movie his entire career. One last thing I wanted to talk about with this movie is the soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Uh, oddly enough, Angelo Baldaramenti... Badalamenti. Badalamenti. Angelo Badalamenti did the soundtrack for this. He's dope. Which is wild. You know, he did all of the Twin Peaks soundtrack he's a big david lynch guy did a lot of great soundtrack work and it's always surprising seeing his name in the opening credits because you would not expect him to be on this movie at all but i think it comes down to that almost tarantino-esque love of filmmaking that eli roth has to like pull someone like that into to go the- after somebody yeah. like badalamenti yeah I have to say, uh, and I and I really only mean this as a compliment. I don't I don't remember any of the score in the in the movie. And I just watched it. None of it caught me, and that's because I, I assume like it only enhanced the film. Like I bet no no motifs, no nothing like drew my attention away from the film towards the score itself. Like I just remember the film. Like I, I in, have, and that's that's rare for me. Like normally, I'm very keyed into that. It's not intrusive, but I do think that uh, it does have some like at least it. it for me, and maybe it's just because I've seen it many times, but it has a very memorable sound. It does feel like kind of spooky backwoods. Like, there's a lot of, like, banjo and out-of-tune fiddle and kind of stuff like that that I think is is very atmospherically consistent with the rest of the movie. Um, it intensifies a lot of the scarier moments in the movie. Yeah underneath when Bert is running from the uh, rednecks oh, is a yeah. great example of that. You know, there's a spooky, like, almost atonal just drone going on, kind of building the intensity of the scene. It's great. Fun. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, the movie is very funny, but I think that it is tense when it needs to be. Mm-hmm. The comedy doesn't deflate the moments of horror, you know? Like, it's, Well, and I think it's, the brutality of a yeah. lot of the gore really helps, you know, carry that as well. When we go to Karen in the shed later on and see her basically basically without skin on her face. Yeah, the dog ate her face off. Yeah. Yeah, I I think so. I think that uh, sort of like inversely, like coming back around, like the the humor does a really good job of keeping the brutality from feeling excessive or gratuitous. Whereas in Hostel, like even though it's funny, like it's, you know, it's part of that torture porn way of the brutality is the point. But in Cabin Fever, no matter how much like brutality and gore there is, 
there's so much lightheartedness in the gags that it's hard to like to stay feeling uncomfortable. I think that the balance between the two is really good. It's not a one-note film. It does tension and horror really well, and it does comedy very well. Time to rate, boys? I think so. Yeah. Ben, this was your pick, so why don't you start? Okay, well, Cabin Fever is a classic, in my opinion. I love this movie so much. I think it hits a perfect balance of humor and horror that not many movies do. It has such an embrace of camp, in a sense, that's very rare nowadays. And I think it's criminally underappreciated. This is a five for me. This is a near-perfect movie. Yeah, I don't have much to add to that. Um, I think that it's definitely Eli Roth's best film. It's one of the best uh, horror satires ever, especially of its era. It's such a perfect time capsule of the tropes of the early 2000s. And no matter how many times I see it, I always laugh at the same gags every time. Like, and that, that really, really speaks well for the, the sort of sticking power of this movie. I wish more people loved it the way I did. Uh, it's going to be a five for me as well. Well, fortunately, uh, someone else today, uh, developed, uh, a love for this film. Nice. Uh, that isn't you. So, uh, hooray! Woo! You won! Uh, <laughs> you get a prize. And that prize is a uh, five from me as well. Golden for prize. For all the reasons y'all said. Hell yes. The latest inductee into the hallowed halls of the Golden Pods is Cabin Fever with a unanimous perfect rating. If you've stuck around this long and you still haven't seen the original Cabin Fever, go out and watch it. Like, yeah, there's, a, there's, there's so much we didn't unpack because oh, yeah. it would be silly to like the film does a great job. Of, we of we don't it. we don't do the film any favors by trying to explain every gag. Like, no, no. go just go watch it. And whatever you do, make sure that you're not watching the 2016 one. Yes. Do Christ. not watch Cabin Fever 2016. Cabin Fever 2003. You'll know pretty quickly. Uh, well, next week is my pick. Indeed. And I was planning on doing something else quarantine related, keeping the theme going along, but... The theme of the teen quarantine. (laughs) 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 Yikes. Whoopsies. Sadly. (laughs) Sadly. uh, T-I-N-E, anyway. Uh, tragedy struck uh, a few days ago at the time of recording, and we lost a true legend. Uh, Stuart Gordon died at the age of 72 recently. Uh, and so to honor Stuart Gordon, I think that it's only fitting that we cover one of his classics. And it's going to be one that I shamefully have not seen yet. Uh, the easy choice would have been Reanimator, but I love Reanimator, and we'll do that at some point. But instead, we're going to cover From Beyond, uh, oh. based on the H.P. Lovecraft story of the same name. We'll talk more about Stuart Gordon next week, but fucking R.I.P. Yeah, I'm excited. I haven't seen From Beyond either, but I do have a fun fact. It was uh, produced by a little studio called Full Moon. 
Full Moon Studios! <laughs> one of their first, actually. Same studio that brought us Ginger Dead Man. Oh, word? Excellent. Was Brian Usna attached to From Beyond? I know he was on Reanimator and he worked with Stuart Gordon a lot. Uh, uh, yes, he was a producer, along with Charles Band, who, uh, of course, is the Full yes. Moon guy. Awesome. Cool. Well, I'm I'm excited for From Beyond next week. I've seen bits and pieces of it, but never the whole thing. And I think what better way to honor a true real one, Stuart Gordon. So check back with us next week. Uh, maybe it'll take your mind off the quarantine and take it to some place beyond. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of the beyond Cleveland what has the sponsor shelf granted us this week deep within the sorrows of our immeasurable pain deep within that well of abyssal torment that seeps out from our very souls that slowly pools out from our being and saturates our environments and those even that we love around us try granny humpledinks bean bars and get your mind off of all that all that bad all that sorrow that comes from within that we can't really codify, we can't really refer to by any name other than just the deep darkness of the soul, that wretched abyss that torments for all eternity, even after we're gone. We know it will still linger in others that we've we've harmed in our lives, that that wretched pain. Just make it all go away with Granny Humpledinks bean bars. There you go. Granny Humpledinks, it's hard to be mean with a mouthful of bean. Thanks, Granny Humpledink. All right, that'll do it for this week's episode. If you like the show, make sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this right now. And if you can leave a rating, do it. Make it all of the stars. As many of them as there are. Just like we gave Cabin Fever. All of them. Put us into the golden pod hall. Of your heart. (laughs) Of your heart. And don't forget to leave a nice review as well with some kind or unkind words. You can be mean if you want as long as the rating is five stars. We're just so lonely from quarantine. Any messages at this point would be wonderful. It's important to social distance, but not on social media. Speaking of which, you can follow us on Twitter at PodPeoplePod. Let us know, have you seen Cabin Fever before, and do you like it, or are you one of those doofuses who thinks it's dumb? You doofus. You you dingus. Or you can also follow us on letterbox.com slash podpeoplepod, where you can see a list of all the films we've talked about on the show with our average ratings and links to those episodes. We've talked about a lot! And you can also traverse the ever-growing halls of the Golden Pods, where you will see Cabin Fever placed upon... A pedestal alongside many other perfect films. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Deep State Ozzy. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Sheets. Follow me for some primo <laughs> Animal Crossing content. 
<laughs> and uh, I am occasionally tweeting for Light Arc Studios as we push out our wonderful, lovely, lovely game. It stares back. That's it stares back. Um, uh, and I've actually been tweeting a little bit lately, guys, uh, for, for once. Um, I've actually been tweeting some, some arts that I've been, been, been cooking up for the old game. Uh, yeah. And you can also, of course, find this old game on Steam. Uh, once again, just, it stares back. It'll show up. I promise. I promise you. Uh, and, um, also join our Discord, the It Stares Back Discord via our website at lightarkstudio.com. And you can also check out some of those lovely, lovely arts, uh, on my art station at Cleveland Mosier. Uh, just, just search Cleveland Mosier Art Station, either on Art Station or on Google. It'll show up. You, you know how you know how the Google box works. If if you don't, I don't know how you got to this podcast. I really don't. Um, but yeah, that about sums it up. Um, I'm open for commissions right now as well. So if you want some cool some cool arts done, hit me up. I might be able to paint you a spooky picture. Yeah, definitely uh, check out Cleveland's work and hit him up for a commission. Times are tough for everybody, but especially artists. So if for some reason you are not affected financially by all of the bullshit that's going on, which if you are, totally understandable. Can relate. Uh, but yeah, um, Commission Cleveland do some art for you. You won't be disappointed. The quality is good. I can vouch. Uh, all right, well, next week from beyond, and who knows where our souls will be after another week in quarantine. They'll be full with the love of Granny Humpledink. And pancakes. Pancakes.